What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. It is Friday, October 21st, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going? Matty, pretty good over here, dude. 10 days until Halloween. I'm pumped. I am growing out a little little facial hair for it. So Ooh. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you. Yeah, you gotta send Snapchat on the night of <laughs> Wake Up Bestie costume reveal just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> that also means we are ten days away from a Halloween TPT episode. So maybe we'll talk about some sustainable candy options, mm. sustainable costumes, you know. Let's let's dive into that a little. It'll be a shorter episode, fifteen minutes, but yeah. that sounds like a good topical episode. I like that too. That sounds good. And you know, you gotta check your kids' candy. It's a, it's a safe thing to do. It's the right thing to do. You could find a TPT sticker <laughs> in your kid's Kit Kat, and you don't know. So I thought you were know. about to take that the serious route, and I was going to say I saw one where it's like, make sure you check your kid's candy. I saw in New York they're doing this, and then somebody broke open a Snickers, and it was just like a Photoshopped picture of a pair of Timberlands in it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, dude, that's incredible. <laughs> I love New York. I absolutely love this city, this state. I'm a New Yorker to my core. Go Yankees. Let's ride. <laughs> let's ride. <laughs> All right. Let's ride right into today's show. Today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. All right, time for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Gloria Dickey of Reuters, who writes, global wildlife populations have sunk 69% since 1970. WWF report. Yeah, so just heads up in advance, today's episode is going to have a little interesting structure. Um, It's very wildlife heavy for the first half. And it's going to be drought and water rights heavy for the second half. So hope you're interested in one of those two topics, if not both. The first article today says that the drop in wildlife populations has been caused by climate change, habitat loss and pollution. Forests have been cleared for agriculture and lumber usage. Oceans and other ecosystems have become heavily polluted and air quality has diminished due to increased greenhouse gas emissions. All of these were contributing factors in the major population decline observed since 1970. Andrew Terry of the Zoological Society of London says that the decline tells us that nature is unraveling and that the natural world is emptying. The WWF report used 2018 data from the Zoological Society of London and analyzed 32,000 wildlife populations across 5,000 different animal species. Along with the factors that Matt brought up, the report said human exploitation is another major driver of the decline. Yeah, and that can be extrapolated out to pretty much the entire natural world under our current global system. You know, human exploitation has come with great, great economic growth, but it's not sustainable if it's left unchecked. And soon those very systems that we relied on to grow in the first place, they're not going to be here or they're going to be severely diminished. The article says that nature is in pretty dire straits and is in desperate need of support. Yeah, and there are some signs for hope here. 
Delegates from around the world are gathering in Montreal in December to work on a new global strategy to protect the world's plants and animals. One of the key focuses and biggest requests is going to be increased financing for global conservation efforts. Alice Ruiza, WWF's Regional Director for Africa, says, We are calling on the rich nations to provide financial support to us to protect our nature. Yeah, and that's kind of what it's going to come down to in these global global talks. In this case, it's about wildlife conservation, but just global environmental talks in general. It's going to come down to the rich nations to, to pull their weight because we have profited for so long just by exploiting the natural world. And that impacts everyone. You know, that impacts those countries that didn't have a chance to develop their economies as much as the United States, the European Union, the United yeah. Kingdom, Canada, you know, we're reaping those benefits. And it's the same exact argument that we have with the U.S. being the world's leader in, you know, historical emissions. Even if we don't have the most carbon emissions today, you know, October 21st, 2022, we have the most of all time. Yeah. And we can't discount that. And it's the same thing here. You know, we have reaped the benefits of nature diminishing, of wildlife populations declining, biodiversity loss. We've benefited from that. Yeah. And it's going to hurt all of us. So it's our turn now to say, yeah, we made our money. Let's pay our dues. Yeah. And it's the smaller nations that are going to suffer the most from this. Like I was watching, mm -hmm. um, this is more on like a micro scale, but I was watching this documentary about bread in Morocco and they just talk about how they're so reliant on getting the grain wheat from other countries all across the world. And if they don't get it, straight up like people riot in the streets because bread becomes too expensive yeah and it's just it's you've seen the same thing happen um with the arab spring mm -hmm. and it's just like we need to help these countries who cannot provide for themselves yeah yeah and in this case what that looks like is every single person on this planet should want to protect biodiversity should want to protect ecosystems should want to protect wildlife mm -hmm. because if you protect biodiversity the dividends are you know, we can't really put a, a number on how much it pays us to have more biodiversity, but we can definitely quantify how much it's going to cost us through biodiversity loss. Those countries that don't have as advanced economies as the industrialized world, they can't contribute to a global fund to protect biodiversity as much as we can. So we have to pull the weight for them. We have to make those investments and say, hand up, we benefited off this. It's on us now to fix it more than it is on on everyone. Yeah, completely agree. So we'll cover that talk in December, uh, unless it happens during our TPT holiday break, in which case we'll cover it in January. But you can guarantee you'll hear it on this show. It'll be talked about on this show 100%. Subscribe. <laughs> All right. Our next story is from Manga Bay, where Elizabeth Claire Alberts writes, Greenland shark, world's longest living vertebrate, gets long-awaited protection. Greenland sharks grow slowly, swim slowly, mature slowly, and <laughs> live a long time. Scientists think that they don't start reproducing until they're around 150 years old, and wow. they can live between 270 to 500 years. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like this animal lives a long time. They have seen some shit. Yeah, so. <laughs> that, that's incredible. Yeah, it just reminds me of a crush from Finding Nemo. He's like, how old are you? He's like, fifty, dude. And still young. <laughs> that's that's yeah. his Greenland shark. 
So their longevity has made them particularly vulnerable to overfishing because they, you know, presumably started their lives before this big factory farming-esque style of fishing came into play, you know, industrialized Mm -hmm. fishing. So because of that, they're more vulnerable. And it's estimated now that around 3,500 individual Greenland sharks are accidentally caught as bycatch in the Northwest Atlantic Ocean, Arctic Ocean, and Barents Sea, according to the IUCN. In the past 420 years, the Greenland shark population has declined by about 60%, and it was listed as vulnerable on the IUCN Red List in 2020. In September, the Northwest Atlantic Fisheries Organization, or NAFO, prohibited catching and keeping Greenland sharks in international waters. Exceptions would be possible if countries have a domestic ban on discarding fish, which is the law in Iceland, Norway, the Faroe Islands, and Greenland. The good news is that even there, the Greenland shark cannot be caught on purpose. Greenland sharks tend to get caught as bycatch most often in bottom trawling gear, but they're also susceptible to other kinds of fishing, such as gill netting, according to Bryn Devine of the marine conservation NGO Oceans North. Sonia Fordham of Sharks Advocates International said an important part of implementing the new rule will be taking steps to ensure that Greenland sharks, if accidentally caught, can be safely returned to the water. She's quoted as saying scientists say they're good at playing dead, so they're often assumed as dead and may not be treated particularly carefully to get them out of the net. And it can also be hard to get them out of the net itself. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough situation, right? You know, you're, you're trying to do the right thing. You're not purposely catching these. You accidentally catch one, and then all of a sudden, you think it's dead. You Let's be honest. Like, if you catch something while you're fishing and it's dead, you're probably not going to care if you place it gently or just toss it back. Yeah. So I, I understand that there. And that's something where science has to work into the fishing industry and say, here are the signs to know if it's playing dead versus it's actually dead. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like we talked about last week with, um, educating farmers, education is the key here. Just educate Mm -hmm. the, the people who are on the seas, who are fishing the most, who are doing the most gill netting and, and other such net tossing, whatever, Mm -hmm. to make sure that they're being careful with these Greenland sharks because they are slow. They are, I mean, God, if you're 350 years old, you'd move pretty slow too, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I I like to think that most people have good intentions. So I don't think anyone is going to be out there purposely trying to catch this Greenland shark. But if accidental bycatch is the main contributor here to them being added to the IUCN red list as a a vulnerable species, then it's something we have to account for. So I'm glad to see they're being proactive, you know, before they go from vulnerable to endangered to critically endangered to extinct. Mm. Right now, while they're vulnerable, we're coming up with a solution. We're saying that internationally, you can't catch them purposely or by accident. Mm -hmm. Domestically, you can't catch them on purpose. Hopefully more of those nations will have national laws in their national waters saying that even if you catch it by accident, you need to be careful because you're going to get in trouble if not. Yeah, I agree. That's got to be the standard. All right. The next one is titled Chernobyl Black Frogs Reveal Evolution in Action by the conversation's Erman Oritzola and Pablo Baracco, published in fizz.org. Super cool story, since um, evolution usually occurs slowly over hundreds of years, if not thousands, you know, as animals adapt to their environment and those with better traits survive. And if you're surviving, you're going to be the ones that are reproducing. 
In this case, the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear power plant's meltdown had severe impacts on the environment and human population around the planet. 36 years later, Chernobyl has become one of Europe's largest nature preserves with a diverse range of endangered species living nearby. Radiation can damage an organism's genes and cause mutations, but some species are actually adapting to live with the radiation. Crazy. Some animals have developed adaptations that increase their ability to survive and reproduce in areas that have had radioactive contamination. The researchers for this article found that eastern tree frogs near Chernobyl, which are usually bright green, have been found to have a darker tint, in some cases leaving the frog a dark black color. So the frogs have developed more melanin in their pigments, which can reduce the negative impacts of UV radiation. Researchers are now finding that the melanin can reduce the negative effects of ionizing radiation as well by absorbing part of that radiation energy. So a less sciencey explanation is that melanin makes it less likely that individuals exposed to radiation will go on to suffer cell damage. If you're not suffering cell damage, it's going to increase your survival chances. So the article talks about Chernobyl tree frogs studied across 12 breeding ponds, some in areas that were highly contaminated with radioactivity, and some without radioactivity that were used as controls. Some of these ponds were in the most radioactive areas in the world, and the researchers found that frogs in the radioactive zones are much darker than frogs captured in control areas outside the zone. The coloration is not related to the levels of radiation that frogs experience today based on measuring any sort of radioactivity in the individual frogs. The dark coloration is typical of frogs from within or from near the most concentrated areas at the time of the accident. Meaning that this study suggests the Chernobyl frogs could have undergone a process of rapid evolution in response to that initial radioactivity in 1987. The dark frogs would have survived that radiation better, and for that reason, they would be more successful at reproducing. More than 10 generations of frogs have passed since the accident. Natural selection may explain why these dark frogs are now the more dominant type for the species within the Chernobyl exclusion zone. But this is a much faster evolution than we can ever normally expect. Yeah, it's super interesting. You know, you see evolution over so long because it takes a while for generations to outcompete each other. You know, more favorable traits are going to be a part of reproduction. So those traits are what survives. Mm -hmm. In this case, you're seeing it so, so quickly. I mean, it's been since 1987 and we have very dark black tree frogs that are normally a bright green color. It's, it's super, super interesting. Yeah, this is so cool. And like, um, again, the same documentary I was watching before about the, the bread in Morocco was talking about how they can genetically or not genetically modify, but they can take wheat that is grown in really, really hot temperatures where it's not supposed to and is drought tolerant. So it's like green instead of like the classic, you know, yellow that we see in, in, in a wheat plant. And they can take that green one that's been drought tolerant and take it back to a lab and basically reproduce it and then form seeds from it to make it so that it can be um, more tolerant to drought and, and other such effects of, of climate change. And this is what we're going to have to do as a society is like ramp up our, our ability to adapt to the hotter temperatures we're going to be experiencing. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's definitely a, a sign for hope. Hopefully, hopefully we don't have as many droughts as we're expecting because we get climate change more under control than it looks like it's going to be today. 
but something yeah. like that is a, is a reason for hope and selective breeding with different plants and hopefully different animals is going to make things survive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the best thing about the animals is they can do it themselves. We don't have to like, there's no real like interfering we have to do in order for them to adapt. It's just like a natural thing. So that's cool. Yeah. Nature always finds a way. Yep. And we always find a way to send you right into a break after our third quick hit of the day. We got two more for you coming up when we get back. Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A.co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, Mississippi River levels are dropping too low for barges to float by Scott Dance of the Washington Post. The current drought in the Mississippi River has water levels at their lowest in at least 10 years, making it harder and harder for water levels to stay high enough for critical exports to be shipped along the Mississippi. 41% of the contiguous United States is covered by the Mississippi River Basin, and drought has persisted along much of that region. By contiguous U.S., we mean 48 continental states, excluding Alaska and Hawaii. The past few months have been some of the driest on record of the heartland of the river, after record-setting storms caused intense flooding earlier this summer. And that's climate change, baby. Drought and extreme weather events constantly working in tandem with each other. Yep. The river is usually at its lowest point during this time of the year, and long-term forecasts suggest that unusually dry weather is likely to continue. This also impacts drinking water because salt water can work its way up from the Mississippi from the Gulf of Mexico because of the lower river conditions. Over the past few weeks, water levels have been so low that the Army Corps of Engineers stopped all maritime traffic on the river so that they could dredge channels so the barges could continue to travel. And those barges were already carrying lighter loads due to the low water level, because if you're carrying your normal load and water is as low as it is, barge is going to get stuck. Yeah. <laughs> so they're already adapting to that by lightening the load, and the Army Corps still had to get involved to basically make it so there was more available water. <laughs> it's a very, very difficult situation here. Wow. Dredging costs billions of dollars per year already, and we could potentially need more than that this year and moving forward. Around 60% of the country's corn and soybean exports travel along the Mississippi. So this isn't something where we can just stop transportation of these barges altogether. 
The Climate Prediction Center is predicting normal precipitation levels over the next few weeks. So that could provide some temporary relief, but then it looks like we're back to those drought conditions. The Army Corps of Engineers is working to make sure that water remains drinkable and that water levels remain as consistent as possible. Dredging works to protect fresh water because salt water is heavier than fresh. So by digging down, the fresh water will rise to the top. Others disagree that the problem is under control and stating that the nature can't be tamed. Robert Chris of Washington University in St. Louis says that the Mississippi River has become a volatile system with water levels changing drastically. He says we have an unpredictable river now and you don't want an unpredictable river. Yeah, you know, it's, it's one of those things where if you can predict when the river is flooding, if you can predict when the river is at its low point, you're able to adjust for that. And, and luckily, we're at a point now where we have the infrastructure surrounding it where the flooding isn't as big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Right. When the river gets super high, we have things in place to make sure that the river isn't just destroying the, the land around it. Yeah. But when the river gets lower than it's supposed to, you know, you're in this situation that we find ourselves in right now. This is an unpredictable river and we don't know how low it's going to get. All we know is that as it continues to get low, the Army Corps of Engineers are going to need to stay on top of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's definitely a scary thing, especially I'm sure if you're living in that area is like we might not have drinkable water in, you know, in a few in a couple of weeks, you know, so definitely something to monitor and hopefully it's uh, not too bad. Dude, even if you're not living in that area, we said 60% of the nation's corn and wheat, sorry, corn and soybean travel along this river. So who among us has not eaten corn or a corn product in the last couple weeks? You know what I mean? Like this is something that's going to impact everyone, whether you're there or not. Mississippi River is one of the most important rivers in the U.S. If like it's something that we all rely on, whether we think about it, whether we live near it, yeah, it's there and it's always been reliable. So to have it now be something that we need to constantly monitor, monitor, it's a really big deal, especially when we talk about the cost of climate change. This is what we're seeing, you know, the cost of of digging down and dredging that's going to increase, and that's already billions of dollars per year. Yeah. So if that continues to increase, like that's what we talk about when we say the cost of doing nothing related to climate change, it's a lot. So whatever investments we're talking about and saying it'll cost this much per year to mitigate climate change, this situation with the Mississippi River, this shows exactly why it's worth it to invest instead of just dredging year after year after year and living with this new scenario. Hoping that it just goes away. Yeah. 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 All right. Our last quick hit of the week is from CNN, where Ellen Nielsen writes, Biden administration outlines plan to pay for Colorado River water cuts as crisis looms. So last week, Nick and I talked about the crisis on the Colorado River, and we talked about some potential plans. And then literally the day after we recorded, (laughs) I texted Nick and I was like, well, I guess I know what we're talking about next week because the Biden administration came out with this plan. So we talked about the major water shortage going on along the river, especially with the Imperial Valley's farms using more water than all of Nevada and Arizona combined. 
one of the ideas that was floated to combat this was paying farmers to use less water so that they would plant less water-intensive crops without the economic damage causing any of our agricultural producers to go out of business. Yeah, so this week the Biden administration announced that it intends to pay farmers, cities, and Native American tribes in the Southwest for voluntary water cuts. The money will come from the $4 billion in drought relief funding that was set up through the Inflation Reduction Act and mostly focuses on California, Arizona, and Nevada, which make up the lower Colorado River Basin. This new program will pay applicants a fixed amount per acre foot of water that they are able to leave in Lake Mead. Lake Mead is the country's largest reservoir and is at a historically low level currently. One acre foot is roughly 326,000 gallons of water, or half of an Olympic-sized swimming pool. The plan is to pay farmers more if they consume less water for a longer period of time. One year of reduced consumption will earn $330 per acre foot, which goes up to about $365 for two years, or $400 for three-year commitment. Some stakeholders have already announced that they are considering cutting hundreds of thousands of acre feet per year, and the Interior Department said that payment will only be made after confirming that the cuts to consumption were actually made. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland said that this drought is one of the most significant challenges facing our country today, and that the department is committed to using every available resource to conserve water and ensure that irrigators, tribes, and adjoining communities receive adequate assistance and support to build resilient communities and protect our water supplies. The article brings up how it will be important for farmers to use the money they make from cutting waters to save the river and avoid a full crisis. Colorado River states need to use two to four million fewer acre feet of water per year in order to restore the river, which is up to a 30% cut to water consumption. Something I find really encouraging is Arizona's Department of Water Resources Director, Tom Bushatsky, saying that there needs to be a focus on long-term conservation and systematic change. He said that the worst outcome would be using up the IRA's drought fund without creating a long-term benefit. And the fact that he's bringing that up in advance And the Department of the Interior saying it will accept long-term proposals to fix water infrastructure in the West and promote long-term conservation makes me really optimistic that this is something that, yes, it will be a short-term fix to pay people to stop using water. Sure, that doesn't address the root issue, Mm -hmm. but the root issue is being addressed or at least considered at the very least, you know, to start off with by Arizona's Department of Water Resources director. You have to assume that that means he's talking to other states and their similar committees. We have the Department of the Interior thinking about long-term commitments here. Mm-hmm. This is something where if we're not doing the long-term stuff yet, we're at least in talks to get there and hopefully get a long-term fix here. Bushatsky also added that the situation is so dire that he doesn't think voluntary cuts will be enough. And it might take a federal policy to make the cuts that are actually needed. Yeah, we'll see. You know, I I mean, if it comes from the state or if it comes from the federal level and we need to get to that point, let's do it. I mean, it's more important to to save a river that, you know, like the Mississippi, the Colorado is one that a lot of people in the U.S. really rely on for food, for water, you know, for irrigation for their crops. It's Mm -hmm. it's really important that Lake Mead, the country's largest reservoir, and the greater Colorado River as a whole are protected. So if people are a little 
annoyed that there is like a federal policy stating we need to use less water if we're around there. Sure. That's annoying. I get it. I would be a little frustrated, but yeah. let's be honest, preserving the river long-term is way more important. Yeah. We're, we're talking about like a absolute devastation of like the U S agriculture market. I think we talked about this last week, but California produces so much food and like, yeah, we, we need to resolve this issue. And the fact that there are some long-term solutions that are coming out is a good first step forward. Yeah, absolutely agreed. All right. That will do it for today's episode of TPT. On Monday, we're going to be back for a feature story about the building sector. Yeah. So we'll be talking about the sector's emissions and how they can actually be cut. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Send us an email at planettodaypod at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Janusa produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, And that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace.